Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Morse prose is nimble and luminous, the style perfectly suited to the breadth and range of this expansive novel. She Would Be King has already earned fantastic praise. Glamour called it a breathtaking retelling of the founding of Liberia. The New Yorker called it a bold debut. The force and the symbolism of myth pervade Moore's engrossing tale. Y2 Moore is the founder of One More Book and is a graduate of Howard University, Columbia University, and the University of Southern California. She teaches at the City University of New York's John Jay College and lives in Brooklyn. Also joining us this evening is Allison Noel Connor. Her writing has appeared in Bitch, Jacket 2, the, uh, the Rumpus, and elsewhere. Her essay on the short film The Kitchen by Alil Sharon Larkin and the fiction of Gail Jones appears in the anthology Rock Haven, A History of Interiors. She serves as a reviews editor at Full Stop Magazine and is a graduate of the Creative Writing MFA program at CalArts. We're incredibly fortunate to have them with us this evening. Please join me in giving them a warm welcome. She Would Be King is a retelling of Liberia's history through three characters with supernatural abilities. Um, there's Bessa, she is an indigenous bi woman and she's immortal. And June Day, he is a slave in Virginia and during his first encounter with an overseer, he realizes that his skin is impervious to bullets and blades and when he's whipped, his back doesn't scar, so he escapes the plantation and ends up on a boat back to Liberia. And then Norman Aragon, who's the son of a Jamaican maroon and a British scholar, he can make himself invisible. And so he also ends up on a boat back to Liberia. And the three of them, for a time, travel together and fight the remaining slave traders while colonialism and, and imperialism are still very present on the continent. And then slavery um, toward black bodies is still going on in the rest of the world. And so I am going to read to you from um, the beginning of the book, the introduction of Bessa, and then we will, Allison will join us and we'll have a conversation. There were no bi girls like Bessa. The coastal village of La had only seen one woman as cursed, Oma Fomata, who they say is sitting in the corner of the moon after her hammock flung her there on her 193rd birthday. But even Oma Fomata's misfortune was nothing compared to that of Bessa, whose curse was not only her inability to die, but also the way death mocked her. Lai was hidden in the middle of forest when Vi people found it. There was evidence of earlier townsmen there, as ends of stoneware and crushed diamonds were found scattered on hilltops in the unexpected company of domestic cats. When the Vi people arrived from war-ravaged Arabia, through the Mandingo inland in the early 18th century, they found no inhabitants and decided to occupy the province with their spirits. On a plot of land one mile long and one half mile wide, they used smelted iron to build their village, a vast circle of, palm, of houses excuse me, constructed of palm wood from nearby trees, zinc roofs, and mud bricks to keep them cool during the dry season. During the day, the old Paul sat together and drew lines and symbols in the dirt that represented how many moons it had been since the last rainfall or the last eclipse or other wonders of the sky. They waited for the spirits to reveal themselves in nuances and uncover secrets of the land and its animals. Among many things, like which Pora warrior would best lead upcoming defenses against local tribes so that the Vi army would return with cattle, harvest, and captives to help them tend the village rice farms, the spirits also told the Opas to take care of the sensitive animals of the province, specifically cats. The Opas then divulged to the villagers the news they gathered from the spirits. Omanyapu never listened. Before Bessa was born, Omanyapu, old, bitter, widowed, was living only two houses down from Kati, Bessa's pregnant mother. <coughs> Oma Nyapu had a pudgy orange cat whom she beat regularly to numb her loneliness. The village elders warned Oma Nyapu of what the spirits had told them about beating cats, but she disregarded them. She was powerless to her pride, 
and she hoped she would make the spirits angry enough to reunite her with her deceased love. When Kano, Charlie the fisherman's slave, knocked on Omanyapu's door to deliver her the fish that her nets had caught, the pudgy cat stared hoggishly at the tin bucket. He hid behind the fire pit as Omanyapu closed the door in Kano's face and inspected the bucket for any sign of pilfering. You would not touch it, she yelled, shaking the fish. Scales, salt water, and blood flew, and the cat dodged Omanyapu's warning. That night when Kano finished his chore of cleaning fish for Charlie's wife, he blew the light from the last lantern away. The whistle his compressed lips made married the pungent smell of fish and journeyed through the village circle to Omanyapu's house, awakening the cat. The cat arose from the corner where he had been lying and probed the room. In the dark, his nose led a desperate search for Omanyapu's bucket of fish. Omanyapu's leg twitched and she snored expletives into the night. Alarmed, the cat positioned himself to run in the event that she leaped from her sleep to beat him with the redwood handle of the porch broom, but she remained in abysmal slumber. The cat proceeded toward Omanyapu's fish, disregarding the likely retribution on the following day when she would discover that her fish were gone. When he finally reached it, he lifted himself up to the rim of the bucket, careful not to scrape the edge with his nails. His eyes were large, his mouth ready, when a hard blow threw him across the room. I told you, and eso? Omanyapu asked, lighting her lantern. The cat tried picking himself up, only to meet another hard slap to his head. He stretched his claws and hissed at the old woman. She struck his head once more, and the cat shrieked, this time waking a neighbor. Determined to escape her fury, he scurried over to the fire pit. Excuse me. Oh no, Omanyapu said. You ain't going nowhere. She dragged him out from behind the fire pit by his calico tail. In the village circle, neighbors gathered outside of Omanyapu's door, baffled at what had made the old woman so angry that she beat the poor cat in the middle of the night. I will teach you. You will feel it, she said. The cat screeched, unable to escape the bitter widow. The neighbors' tongues became sour, their ears warm, disgusted at the Oma's audacity in offending the spirits. Charlie knocked on Omanyapu's door, but she ignored him and continued beating the cat. But she would kill the team, said Charlie's son, Safwa, an already handsome five-year-old boy with skin the color of a coconut shell and eyes that were always asking a serious question. Inside, the cat lay in the corner as Omanyapu's stout figure and broom became blurry. Tired of seeing her, he let his eyes close, and his heart stopped, and his mouth opened. A frozen Obanyapu stared down at his body. She had killed the last living thing whom she could call hers, and was now absolutely alone. She walked to her door, out of breath. When she opened it, her neighbors stood in the village circle, holding lanterns that illuminated their overwrought faces. Charlie peeked into the house and noticed the dead cat lying against the wall. Eya, he said, astonished at Obanyapu's fearlessness. Upon seeing the dead animal, children scattered, returning to their houses. Your spirit's coming for you, Safwa said, the only remaining child in the circle. Yeah, bury it for me, Omanyapu said, as Charlie looked inside of her house at the cat. There was nothing else to say, and he avoided looking her in the face. He called Kano to retrieve the cat, and Kano minced out of the village and into the woods, while a curious Safwa followed to bury the departed animal. In the morning, Omanyapu's house fell down while she was still inside. She died immediately. When they dug up her remains from a pile of palm wood, straw, and debris, Omanyapu's fish were nowhere to be found. Opa Bundo, who woke up every morning to pray before the rooster crowed, who'd slept through the night before and knew nothing of Omanyapu's wicked deed, said he saw the orange cat jump to the top of her house before it fell down. But a cat did, Charlie said, refuting Bundo's claim. When the elders heard of it, they pronounced the day cursed convinced that spirits had possessed the dead cat into coming back, avenging itself, and stealing the bucket of fish to quench his desire. So because of the edict, on that day the drums outside of Kati's window were pounded. Her husband was already fishing at the lake, and she lay moaning in pain on a rectangular pallet woven with large palm leaves and stuffed with straw. Kati would have her baby soon, so at recent weeks her husband has ris had risen before the rooster's song, and spent his hours at Lake Piso in hopes of catching enough fish to eat and trade in the village market. Neither Kati's father, nor her father's father, nor her husband or husband's father were talented enough fishermen to afford her household any slaves, so Kati had inherited nothing. At the moment she opened her eyes and heard the beating of drums, Kati pushed her aching body upward from where she lay. She was a dark brown woman with a slender nose and arms whose breasts and hips had fully developed only in the later months of her pregnancy. She knew by the rhythm of drums that either someone had died or someone had been cursed, both of which posed a gloomy birth for her unborn child. 
Kati's stomach bent in distress. The gray of morning crawled from the open window toward her sitting body, exposing thin streams of sweat that descended her brown face and arms. Kati rubbed and patted her stomach, pleading for her unborn child to tarry just a little longer in her womb. She extended her hand to the floor from the pallet to drag herself to the window, but the uneven weight of her body made her baby's fingers and toes flex inside of her. No, no, Kati whispered to her extended belly. Wait, small, small. She pressed her hand on the floor beside her bed and tried again, this time successfully dragging her aching body off the pallet and across the room to the window, where she rested her back against the wall. Kati grabbed the frame, hoisting her body until her eyes uncovered the Baroque drummers outside. Salt and dust stained their palms. The opals marched around the drummers as their necks sunk into robed shoulders. Kati knew what it would mean to have her baby at that moment, and she crossed her legs. Frightened that she would be seen, Kati collapsed to the ground, her body simultaneously hot and cold, her thin lop endued with sweat. She rubbed her stomach in great panic as she, her eyes canvassed the room for a solution to her disaster. Her pursuit ended with the door closest to the bush garden that led to the entry of the woods. Before Kati could move, a liquid stream of blood and water toddled down her thighs, chased by a more abundant outpouring that left her lapa on the floor around her drenched. To keep from screaming, Kati clamped her bottom lip with her teeth until she could taste her own blood. She could not risk them hearing her, could not bear the delivery of a child on this day, or else she'd be forbidden from ever offering another to her village. Kati finally resolved that she would crawl as far as she could into the woods behind her house. The baby kicked, ready to approach the dim light in the opening. No, no, Kati said again, as the floor beneath her continued to dampen. Her legs quivered. She clutched her lapa and squeezed. It was no use. The child would come. Kati dragged herself toward the door leading out to the woods. She used both of her hands and pulled her quivering body sideways. The child pushed. She squeezed her legs until her thighs ached from the resistance. Please, my child, Kati repeated. Wait, small, small. The drummers pummeled away outside. Wait, small, small. And Kati pushed open her wooden back door and crawled toward a huddle of shrubs. She panted, drained as she pressed and coaxed the baby, first with an intermittent tapping of her stomach. Then she reached one hand underneath her lapa to impede the liquid from where her child pushed its way out. When only several yards away from her house at the end of a train of blood, with no more power to ignore the pain that pushed underneath her wet and sticky fingers, Kati fell onto her back against the waiting leaves. Unable to squeeze her slippery thighs together any longer, unable to constrain the willful head of her baby, Kati howled into the wind and sun. The drumbeat ceased. That was the day that Bessa was born. The elders declared that she was cursed. Thank you. captured the experience of reading this book in that you're kind of immediately delved into this atmosphere that's full, that's very rich, that has a lot of emotions going through it, and um, it was just nice to hear it in your voice. Thank you. Um, so, and I'm, I'm also happy that um, you picked that passage as well, because um, I was really intrigued by your author's note um, that starts off the book where you explain that the story, the journey of the story sort of came from um, um, a story that your mother told you mm -hmm. um, about how cats are sacred mm -hmm. and this woman who mistreats the cat and the ghost that comes back to avenge. Mm -hmm. um, and I was wondering if you could kind of give more insight into why that particular story drew you um, to it and how that also led to the genesis of Bessa right. as well. Right. So a lot of, I, I won't even say Liberian, a lot of Vi myths, my mother, she is Vi, that's her ethnic group, um, and they are located in northern Liberia and, and southern Sierra Leone. And a lot of Vi myths are aphorisms, so they would say things like, you know, don't dig too deep in the dirt, the devil come pull you down, like somebody that, like that existed. And then 
or that like that happened rather. And this particular aphorism was, you know, don't hum up cats. That's what they would tell us. No matter what you do, don't hum up cats. Because of that, remember the old woman beat her cat, and the cat's ghost came and killed her, right? Mm -hmm. And so those always intrigued me. And the 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 message or the the theme that was underlying in all of those was um, a recognition and a respect for living things. So you know. Don't unsettle the ground. Um, don't abuse cats. I think I pushed a cat, and that's when I when I got that lesson. Mm -hmm. And so for a long time, I had been writing short stories and essays that were more focused on the cross cultural experience and the immigrant experience, perhaps, because um, my family immigrated here when I was five. And I was in undergrad, and I had a friend who asked if I'd ever considered writing African fiction. And I said, Well, I don't like no, I don't I don't think so. And this was back in maybe 2007, 2008. And he asked, well, why? I said, that's, that's a really good question. Mm -hmm. And so I decided that I wanted to explore one of these aphorisms in, in my writing. And um, it was particular. I don't know why I chose the cat one, but I think that was the most intriguing to me. It always was, because my mother never said it as something that was imagined. It was always presented as something that actually happened. Um, and so I wanted to give a the cat of personality, and I wanted to give the old woman a name, and I wanted to give a shape to the village. Um, and then when I was finished doing that, then I started to think, well, then what happens after after this woman kills her cat in this village? And then from there, it was like, okay, well, based on their superstitions, if someone is if someone is born around that time, then that person would sort of be condemned with the same superstitions um, that that cause them to believe that um, the, the day was bewitched. And so Bessa was born from that, and she is then called cursed by her village. And then when she gets exiled, then I started to ask myself questions like, well, then where does she go? And of course, at that point in Liberian history is when it was newly settled. So then I wanted to give context to what was going on outside of outside of the village at the time, and then that's where the other characters came in because I wanted to give a full context and glimpse of that part of not just Liberian or African history, but then also American history as well. Mm. Oh, I love that. I love how this sort of family um, experience kind of opened you up to delve deeper into your culture, into the history of Liberia. Um, and I feel that throughout the book as well, in the sense that storytelling is so essential to how the narrative is set up. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't really feel like this point A to point B. I mean, we start with Bessa, but we jump to Virginia with mm -hmm. June Day, and then we jump to um, Jamaica with uh, Norman, and then we're back in Monrovia. Um, and so it feels very dynamic, and it feels very kind of we're picking up these different story threads and then braiding them all together in this really interesting way, um, which recalls kind of just hearing um, your grandmas and aunties and mo mothers telling you stories and kind of passing that all together. So right. um, was that also purposeful, or did that was that something that kind of came out of the writing process? Yeah, that was definitely that form of writing was my introduction to storytelling. There was never. A to B, except for in these, these shorter um, recollections of things that may have happened that stem from superstitions, but it, they were always sort of meandering and they were always wayward in, in a way, but they always came together. And so because that's how I understood stories to work, then, then that's how I go about storytelling. Oh, I love that. I love, yeah, I love the idea of wayward as well, because I feel like this narrative um, doesn't play by the rules in a very fun and inventive way, mm -hmm. um, and it kind of also shows their tracks through movement, which I was, which is also very, it kind of leads me to thinking to questions about home and the fluidity of home. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the characters, they're separated from their home, they're, um, they find new homes, they kind of question what it means to cultivate home, um, and obviously I feel like when you're talking about the diaspora, the diaspora that those questions come into play. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to just hear your thoughts about how yeah. home kind of plays in this narrative. For sure. So my my family moved to America when I was five years old, and we moved around quite a bit. But the reason we came to America was because of the war in Liberia in 1990. And at the time, my mom was actually in Colombia, and so she was a student. She went and got us out, and we lived in her dorm room for the last six months. Yeah. 
of her time at Columbia. Um, and then, because of the war, they didn't know what we were going to do. So we moved around quite a bit. We lived in Connecticut and Memphis, and then we moved to Houston when I was eight, and that's where I spent my formative years. And so we lived outside of Houston in a suburb that was very white, very conservative, and I just heard nothing about Liberia at all, outside of home. Um, and so that absence was very loud and profound because from what my father told me, Liberian history is very closely linked to American history. And not only that, but it's also closely linked to explorations of black identity from like the early 19th century to Reconstruction. So I was always confused as to why I never learned about it in school. Um, and I guess to, if, if anyone is, is unfamiliar, uh, the Liberian identity is it's made up of indigenous by groups or indigenous groups in the region, not specifically by groups. Um, free blacks and former slaves that emigrated to the region in the early 19th century, and free blacks and former slaves from the Caribbean um, that, that emigrated over in, in the later part of the 19th century and early 20th century. And so those three groups came together and were really trying to, to, to create a republic and navigate some of the subtleties as, as well as the massive challenges that are involved with creating a public while the entire continent is being land grabbed by Western powers and you still have slavery going on in the West. Mm -hmm. um, but they had a little pocket on the continent that was uniquely theirs. Um, and that was, as I said, very closely linked to American and history and American identity. And so I wanted to, when I became a writer, I knew that I wanted to explore Liberia um, in literature. Uh, it was a way for me to, I think, reconnect with and navigate my ideas of home because I had been away for so long. Um, but I knew that it was it was something that was significant to tell. Um. Mm. I like that. Um, and yeah, actually, that, I feel like that's one of the more kind of, inf uh, kind of wonderful gifts within the book is thinking about America's closeness to Liberia mm -hmm. and how it is something that's sort of and it doesn't make sense. And it also kind of also, it complicates our narratives of what we mean by colonialism and this kind of binary of like settler versus um, um, indigenous mm -hmm. and actually kind of thinking more centrally within Africans and African-Americans and Afro-Caribbeans. Yeah. Those negotiations that they were making. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the essence of the country, as my dad explained to me, was very pan-Africanist, right? Mm -hmm. He explained like the Liberian identity as one that saw that, that recognized, I would say, the strengths of all of these corners of the transatlantic and were okay with creating an identity that was formed of all of those, those cultures and places. And that's not to say that there wasn't social stratification when the settlers went over. Yes, there was social stratification. Yes, there was an endemic national favoritism. Um, but there was also mixing. There, was inter there were intermarriages. But all of the historical texts that I had read about Liberia um, sort of, as you said, were telling it in a very binary way, good versus evil, um, white versus black, settler versus natives. And I found that somewhat sinister because it always, in these texts, presented itself as, see, you know, we, we may have brutalized them in America, but they went back to Liberia and they did the same thing to the natives, right? Mm -hmm. Almost as a way to absolve guilt. Mm -hmm. And I found that cynical and sinister because, I mean, the truth is, in the research that I had done, you just, you cannot compare the two. Um, you would have actually some of the settlers who went over, they were working on farms too. Mm -hmm. So they would perhaps be getting paid 50 cents a day, whereas uh, a native person would be getting paid 25 cents. But if that native person wanted to leave the farm, they could leave the farm, um, which is not what was going on in the West during slavery. And so because all of the texts sort of presented Liberian history in that way and um, neglected the nuances, uh, I, I knew that I sort of needed to to explore it in that way. And, and there are other writers who do as well. There's um, a guy named Bamba Sherif. He's out of the, the Netherlands. And he's mostly published in Dutch, but he also publishes, in, or he just began to publish in English. But he's a Liberian writer and also deals with some of those nuances as opposed to leaning toward the binary when it comes to telling the history of a place like Liberia. Because it is very pan-Africanist in nature. And I wanted to explore that. What do you do? What happens if you put all of these, these groups 
across the diaspora in one place? Mm -hmm. um, and how do you show perhaps that the struggles of a black body in Flint, Michigan is similar to the struggles of a black body in Rio and a black body in Australia and a black body in Rome and yes, even a black body on the continent in Liberia? I love that and I feel each of the three main characters, they work very well to work very well in the sense that they're in conversation with each other, but it's never this kind of flattening of experience where one can kind of be interchanged mm -hmm. to each other. Um, even down to their gifts, I feel like they're very, after I was finished with the book, the more that I thought about um, the immortality, the strength, and the vanishing, it seems very tied to the context of mm -hmm. where they're from. Mm -hmm. um, and I was wondering if that was also purposeful or... Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. Like, so Bess's immortality, of course, speaks to um, the, the immortality or the, the, the existence, um, continuous existence of indigenous groups on the continent. The truth of the matter is when you go to Africa, calling someplace Africa, that's an external designation. When you're on the continent, you don't have people saying, hey, I'm African, right? Um, that's external. Um, even the countries, like the, the, those 54 countries that we know, those lines were also external designations. There were men in Berlin in the 19th century who drew those lines and said, hey, these are the countries, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's why the narrative now is, oh, you know, those African countries, they're never at peace, they're always fighting each other, but that's all external. Those are the countries that, that, that the West has designated. When you're on the continent, even when you're in Liberia, you're in Ghana, you don't have people necessarily saying, I'm Liberian, right? They'll say I'm Bai, they'll say I'm Fula, you know, they'll say I'm Yoruba. Yoruba's a country, Igbo's a country, you know, Basa's a country. And so when you look at it that way, then you have more than a thousand countries on the continent that are actually pretty peaceful. Mm -hmm. But but if you're looking at it from a Western lens and these external designations, then of course it'll it'll seem um, unsettled. And so Bessa's immortality speaks to that because even when these lines are rearranged and you no longer have the 54 countries, maybe you have five large ones, you're still going to have Vi, you're still going to have Yoruba, you're still going to have Igbo. Mm -hmm. um, and then of course Junde's strength, his abnormal strength was in many ways paying homage to and honoring um, the strength of African Americans in this country and how their, and their contribution, I would say, to people of color, people like me, I recognize that my freedoms and privileges were fought for on the backs of African Americans who were here in this country when my family wasn't. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's important, it was important to me to really um, flesh out that, that section um, and make sure that I spent time with it and make sure that I did right by my ancestors who did go through that period in American history. Um, and then Norman Arrigan. Norman Arrigan, he is a Jamaican Maroon, or his mother is a Maroon, and the Maroons, they were able to successfully rebel from the British um, during three war, two wars. And they ran up to the mountains in Jamaica, and they signed a treaty with the British that essentially said that, okay, well, we'll let you have your freedom, but you have to make sure that uh, if any other slave comes up, you send them back down the mountain, right? And this worked for a time, but there was evidence that they did allow some to come up there if they paid them. And so um, in my research, there were some people who believed that the, the reason for these rebellions was because of witchcraft or something called obey, mm -hmm. that they were able to make themselves invisible. They were able to mm -hmm. somehow uh, be in contact with their ancestors and with the spiritual world. And, and that's how they were able to gain their freedoms. Um, and so I definitely wanted to explore that. Um, what, what, what would happen if, if Norman Aragon did? Because the Liberian um, identity or the, the, the groups in Liberia who are from the Caribbean are actually not from Jamaica. Um, the Liberians who are Caribbean are actually from Barbados and they went to that region in the later 19th century. So that part of the book um, is like the historical check, I would say. So it is realistic that Norman Aragon would have gotten off the boat because what the British was doing to rid the island of some of the Maroons was sending some of them to Sierra Leone. And Sierra Leone was Britain's colony for free blacks from the UK in the same way that Liberia was um, America's colony for free blacks in, in, in America. And so, um, so that part, it, could have happened, but but actually, actually, the Caribbean population in Liberia, they are from Barbados, invasion. Uh, mm -hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Very cool. 
Yeah. Um, oh, I love that. I feel like that deepens <laughs> so much more how the gifts interact throughout the novel, um, the sort of dilemmas that come up with them. Um, to me, just to kind of talk about the gifts as well, um, I was really interested in the way that you kind of talked about them in conversation also with being a curse, you know, and going mm -hmm. back and forth in, with this idea of this is something that imbues them with this sort of power, but they also have to negotiate mm -hmm. what this power means mm -hmm. and how it changes them either for, um, or it's a, just a transformation that they have to kind of um, negotiate. Mm -hmm. um, and so, especially thinking about going back to the cat story and thinking about cats as being sacred, this vulnerable creature, um, I wondered if you could kind of speak about how you kind of view power when it's attached to vulnerable or oppressed people. And in the sense of like these characters, Bessa, um, Norman, and June Day, they almost are, they're fantastical in the sense of it's very exciting to watch them and have these kind of atrocities happen. But they're very, they're immune to it, but also it's not to say that the, like for example with Bessa, like she is immortal, but she still has to experience death, mm -hmm. like experience the pain of death yeah. and be like reborn. Yeah. It's not like she's immune to it. Right. Um, so. so, okay. So a couple of thoughts on that. One of the three of them, Bessa is the, the most powerful because she's immortal, but she's the one who hides her curse the most, right? Like she's the one who's unsettled by her gift. She's the one who names it a curse, right? Like, yes, her, her village designates her as curse, but she assumes that role as well. And she's constantly, even though she's the most powerful, navigating and um, resisting her power and her gifts um, in reaction to the men around her. Um, but it's the men who have these gifts who are assuming it and, and using it. Um, I would say that I have always been into, fantasy, into the fantasy genre. Um, and I noticed that from a very young age that these characters all tended to come from vulnerable backgrounds. And these characters, my work is more of an exploration of what happens when you create characters that are, all, that are institutionally vulnerable, right? As opposed mm -hmm. to just individually vulnerable. What do they do with those powers? Um, but I would say that in writing the book, I didn't so much focus on creating gifts or creating powers. Like, in, so in the Vi storytelling tradition, which, as I said, is my mother's ethnic group, it's just very rare that I read stories that didn't feature someone flying or shape-shifting or casting a spell or disappearing. Um, but, and the example I give is that if you and I are, are having a conversation, we're having a heated debate, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, one of us gets upset and I go to the restroom, but I fly to the restroom. In a Western context, the question would then be, how did this person fly? You would have to, in the Western literary context, you would have to sort of analyze flight. You know, you have to explain the rules of flight. You'd have to talk about, you know, how did how do you respond to my flight? Mm -hmm. But if I tell this same story in Cape Mount County in Liberia, the questions that the kids would ask the griot is, well, why were they quarreling? Were they sisters? Were, was it a lover's quarrel? Did one of them steal the other one's husband? Were they, you know, was, was, was one of them evil? Was one of them good? And so it's more universal theme, universally themed. And so my introduction to the architecture of storytelling did not present magic or fantasy as spectacle, whereas in the West, that's what tends to happen. Mm -hmm. So when I moved, when my family moved here, I was young, I was five, and mind you, all of the stories that I heard had some aspect of fantasy or, or magic, but they weren't, they weren't points of discussion. What we were talking about were things like betrayal and friendship and love. Mm -hmm. So when I moved here, I realized that all of those stories were relegated to this thing called Disney. <laughs> and I, was, I would always be like, well, why are all the stories all but So I, would, I was obsessed with the cartoons, and of course, because those were where I could find the mm -hmm. stories that were the most organic to me. So I say that to say it is very much part of the architecture of African and diaspora of how African and diaspora groups tell stories. It's just that historically, that form of storytelling was suppressed because it was seen as uncivilized and unchristian, right? They saw, you know, when you talk about storytelling that engages with the supernatural, that recognizes ancestors, 
that's seen as lacking civility, that's seen as lacking decency. So they're like, you know, don't, why are you guys telling those stories about ancestors and ghosts? Like, that's unchristian. Don't tell those stories. You're, 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 you're being, you know, you, uh, it's carnal to even think, to even have those conversations. Meanwhile, in Salem, in Massachusetts, you're drowning women because you're accusing them of witchcraft, right? So it's going on all over the world, but it's just in an African context or in a black context, it's seen as bad and expressed. So now you see, you know, black writers, African diaspora writers engaging in this genre that is actually very culturally authentic. And it's like, oh, welcome to, you know, speculative fiction, black writers. But it's like, no, we've been here, right? It isn't something that's new. And then, of course, there's the, the issue of, I know this dialogue has been going on in the literary industry for a while. It's like, do we call it magical realism? Because obviously, historically, magical realism, it, you know, came about, that term came about in the 19s, 1920s, and it referred to South American writers, right? So Gabriel Garcia Marquez and Isabel Allende and Borges, and what they tended to have in common, the through line was Catholicism, resistance to colonialism, and some indigene belief system. And so when African writers and black writers began to be published here, not, not started to write like this, but just started to be published in the West, then just as a function of you know, when art marries commerce, it becomes something else. And so you sort of need a way to market these books. And so they saw the resistance to colonialism in some of them. They saw, you know, these indigene belief systems. And they said, okay, well, it's magical realism. And you only find in the last 20, 30 years that people, the literary industry is now trying to determine some other category to put them in. But that really just serves a commercial function. So you see terms like Afrofuturism coming up in, you know, black speculative fiction or, or whatever. So I try not to get too entangled in the categorization of it. Like people ask me, do you mind if they call it magical realism? And it's like, I just, I, I try not to get too, too, too bothered or attached to, to the categorizations at all. But I do remind people that this is not new for black storytellers. It's actually very cu culturally authentic to tell stories in this way mm -hmm. and not view the magic of the story as spectacle, but the relationships in the story. Oh, I love that. And I, it reminds me of a small moment in the book when June Day and Norman happen upon a village um, with Sam, mm -hmm. and they meet Sia, and they talk about the ancestor house and inviting God, but then also being reminded that even if God is here, this is still an ancestor house and we need to remind ourselves of right. being connected to that voice and that energy yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, and just uh, one kind of note connected to that. I, I read some of um, what you were saying about the wind and how it's connected to black women's subjectivity. And I was very, very um, fascinated by the way that the wind functions and the way that it's a narrator and again this kind of ancestral force and I wanted to know I just wanted to hear more about that yeah so I the, the first draft of the book which was by the way completed in 2009 mm. I, yeah the first draft took about a year to write it was 600 pages it was a oh wow hot ass mess <laughs> I had like uh, there was an alien character Oh. I went all the way. And so, and so then I put it away for a couple of years and picked it back up in 2013 or so and edited for a couple of years and I was like taking away and um, trimming fat and all that stuff and killing garlic and all that stuff. And then I, I, um, I realized during that edit that the third person wasn't quite right. I wanted the story to be told by someone who I could more intimately relate to and who the, the main character could more intimately relate to. And I, I, I wondered whether or not to make her the narrator because I needed the story because it is a story about black womanhood mm -hmm. and so I wanted the person who's telling it to to be familiar with this coupled like asymmetry and beauty that is being a black woman in today's world and certainly a black woman in that world as well and so mm -hmm. um, the wind is a chorus of narrator or a chorus of ancestors rather and um, the narrator who's a character in the book makes her place in that chorus um, do you think it's good to open up for questions? Or yeah. Okay. Um, anyone have a question? Yes. Not really a question, but a comment. Just sort of thank you for your conversation tonight, but also the book. You've tied together fantasy and your history, which all 
have more questions about 2009 to 2018. Yeah. Uh, I'm just so curious about process. And yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I, I finished the first draft in 2000. It took me about a year to write, and it was um, my thesis in grad school. And then I put it away because I was working and involved in other things, and I was still writing, but I knew that that story wasn't. It wasn't time for it. So I put it away and I picked it back up and, and just worked on it. I would work during the day um, and I worked in CSR for a long time. I was in corporate America. Um, and I would come home at night and I would edit. And then I did that for two years and the book sold at the end of 2015, but we had a hard time selling it because they, you know, the, the editors that were being approached by my agent were saying, Mm, black people flying, like, you know, is it, is it YA? Is what we're being asked, is it YA? And my agent said, no, it's literary fiction. And so they said, okay, well, um, we don't know if there's like space for that right now. Or, you know, we don't know that if, if there's like there's room for it outside of YA, because that's where they would tend to, to, um, to put those sort of books. And so we got a lot of no's, and then we got yes by Grey Wolf and I love Grey Wolf so much because they are the sort of publishing house that that takes chances and then of course and but then they told me oh it's not gonna come out until 2018 because unlike larger houses because they're so small um, they only come out with a few dozen books a year and so I said oh my gosh 2018 that's so long um, but I waited, and then at the beginning of 2018, there was this movie that came out named Black Panther. I don't know if you guys saw it. <laughs> and so now, all of a sudden, everyone is like, oh, every other book that's sold is like black speculative fiction, because every, every you know, the literary industry functions off of comps, and so now they have something to compare it to. They can say, oh, look, Black Panther was successful, so then they're entertaining literary fiction um, that is uh, black speculative fiction as well. Um, and so, so yeah, that was the process, and I guess it's the journey from 2009 to today. Um, so, like in strict uh, uh, Anglican hierarchy, the occult and witchcraft was a way for youth and women to assert power through a locked system. Mm -hmm. So, um, this assumption of power by women in history is very interesting. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm trying to, I really like what you're saying really in this conversation. And if you could help me with my ignorance a little bit, I know like Marcus Garvey in Liberia and some things, but I, I didn't know there was a Dutch component, mm -hmm. possibly uh, that colonization. And these wars, mm -hmm. I'm trying to figure out if they're white wars based on exploitation of resource, and that's mm -hmm. why these lines were drawn. Mm -hmm. so could you help me a little bit? Sure. So Marcus Garvey was, he did come around to like the 1920s or so. Like people link him to Liberia, but Liberia was, was around about 100 years before. It's just, it just so happens that Marcus Garvey, when he sort of um, reemerged with the uh, Back to Africa movement, that <coughs> Liberia was the, was the destination. And so that's why people link the two. But, but Liberia was actually settled and founded in 1847. So Marcus Garvey's connection to Liberia is that when he decided that he wanted to um, replicate this movement, Liberia was the designation. Um, the Dutch, yes, the Dutch, so Liberia was twice its size, and the Dutch as well as the French continue to impose, 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 and that's why it is as, as small as it is now. There are four million people in land mass, it's, it's half its size. Um, and then the, they were, there were, it was Dutch people who were paid to draw a map of Liberia, and they drew it much smaller than it was, um, and that's the, the Dutch's involvement. It's like there were the settlers and the tra traders that were still roaming the coast and still roaming the inland, along with the French, and then it was uh, a Dutch man who drew the first map and then drew it much smaller than it was. Um, when you said the wars? Yeah, like Sierra, uh, Sierra Leone and these horrible wars in yeah. the 90s. So I could tell you what conspiracy theorists believe in Liberia, or what the, what the everyday Liberian might say about the wars. Okay, so in the, from 1847 to about 1980, um, the political leadership in Liberia were all from the settling class, right? They were all somehow, you know, had American last names and were, were linked to America. And so the through line now, the, 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 the perception is that the natives were then empowered and went and went and, and killed everyone who was in power and then all of a sudden claimed um, leadership and authority through Samuel Doe, who was then the president. Um, Liberians on the ground believe in the, in, 
I'm not, don't quote me, don't get me killed. But, <laughs> but there is a um, very significant contingency of the population that believes that uh, President Tolbert, who's the one who was overthrown by the coup, um, was killed by the CIA because he was talking to Russia during the time um, of the Cold War. So, I've never heard the CIA or anything like that. And this was also inflamed when Charles Taylor was, um, he was testifying at The Hague and he said, oh, it's the, the CIA who trained me to come back. Um, and he, had, he that's a written testimony. It's like in, in, at The Hague right now in the World Court. So, um, so yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of the wars that happen in that region people on the ground will always say, hey, someone came, we, like, we, we have our resources, um, we don't have power, and it's very easy to pay someone to come and start a war to make, make sure that those resources are entangled in like the right hands, I, I guess. So that's what the word is on the Liberian streets. I was wondering, the gender issue, like I know how gender um, asserts itself through these um, spectacle in American history. Okay, so your title is She Would Be King. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm just wondering what gender, how gender is seen through your culture. Yeah, so the king is the most powerful one in the village, and this the title is, it comes from a conversation that the heroine has at the end of the book. Um, or not the heroine has, it's had about the heroine toward the end of the book. And um, it's commentary on mm -hmm. the fact that even though she is the most powerful, of the three, she's the one who grapples with her power. She's the one who's afraid of her power, doesn't know how to use it in these male-centric, male-dominated contexts. So if she weren't a woman, she would be the most powerful because perhaps then she would have the confidence needed to use her gift in the way that, um, in the way that was needed. what they were fighting for uh, within the book was just the freedom to disagree amongst themselves, right? It's because, like, black solidarity doesn't mean there's going to be a perfection or utopia. If you put people, black bodies from all over the world in one country now, they would be fighting, right? In 200 years, if race is no longer a thing, it's human instinct to find ways to silo. We're going to find some way to separate, and Liberia was an experiment in that, in just that. You know, you have black people from all over the world who create a country, who form a republic, and there was a lot of, of strife, but then there was also a lot of intermarriages and mixing. I mixed myself. My mm -hmm. mother's five, but my dad's people are from South Carolina. They moved to Liberia in 1871. That's why my last name's more. Mm -hmm. And so there, there was intermixing. It wasn't as black and white as what was presented. Um, and I think that going about looking at black solidarity in, in a way that is romantic is harmful because then you don't recognize the humanity of people. And the, and the truth is, we, we, there is interracial tension and interracial conflict, but black bodies, specifically in the Liberian context, just wanted the freedom to figure those things out for ourselves rather than having aid workers or whomever, these foreign powers coming in and saying, okay, this is how you should deal with your conflicts, right? Because in the, that robbing agency of these groups is robbing them of their humanity. Um, so I think that we would probably be fighting for the, for the same things. Any other questions? I had one. Okay. So I was hearing a discussion, and I know it's hard to see into, into the culture you grew up in, mm -hmm. but with this wealth of wisdom you have from Thank you. 
Siberian experiment, uh, for the American experiment? Um, um, I'm not, I think that, I think that if you go about um, looking at history, or the way that I try to go about looking at history, looking at my history, is from a humanist perspective. And I see themes in Liberia's story that are present in countries around the world, right? I don't necessarily see, I mean, with the, obviously with the caveat of you have a country that is very poor, um, a country that does have a lot of external hands in the pot trying to tell leadership and people what to do. Um, but otherwise, some of the same things that you would experience in Liberia, you'd experience, you'd experience here. Um, so lessons for how uh, someone in America could, or, or lessons that someone in America could take from someone in Liberia, um, I, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't know how to, quite how to answer that question. I would say like you, whatever you experience here, don't look at it as, uh, don't look at it as, as foreign as, as we've been indoctrinated to. Just look at it as it's another country in the world that has some of, a lot of the same aspects and the same elements and some of the same issues that you would find here. It isn't as dramatic as what we've been, we've been told, if that makes sense. Are we, are we both struggling towards democracy, both cultures? Uh, I would, are we both struggling toward democracy? Uh, is Liberia struggling toward democracy? No, it isn't. There's a free and fair election last year. But I mean, in Florida, there were some uh, ballot <laughs> voting groups that were. Georgia's not doing right Yeah, so let's, let's talk about the struggle for democracy. Any other questions? What's your next book? Yeah, so my, my memoir is coming out next year, late next year, with Grey Wolf, and it's about my family and, and Liberia. And then I have a novel that I've been completing, and it is about a girl who is bullied, and she gets pushed into a lake, and she realizes that she can breathe underwater. Wow. So it's an um, exploration, I think, of Mami Wata and other things. Um, will you be here? <laughs> yes, I'll come back. Only if you're here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.